0: Well, this morning, we are continuing um, our sermon series, Miracles and Parables. Last week, we began this series, and so this morning, we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 8 where we left off last week. If you remember last week, we began looking at the miracles that Jesus performed in Matthew chapter 8. And we looked at two miracles specifically. The first one was Jesus healing the man with leprosy. Leprosy was the most feared disease in all of ancient Israel. If a person was found with leprosy and was deemed to be permanently unclean by the priest, they would have to go throughout the rest of their lives with their clothes torn, their heads uncovered. They would have to wear a mask because leprosy is an airborne disease. And they would have to go throughout life screaming out, unclean, unclean, unclean. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine having to go throughout all of your life screaming out when you got in proximity of other people that you were unclean? And we looked at how Jesus Wasn't scared of this man's leprosy. And he went up to this man who had not probably felt the touch of another person for most likely years. And what did Jesus do? Jesus went up and touched that man and immediately his leprosy was gone. And then we also looked at the faith of a centurion. If you remember, this centurion had a servant that was sick. And so he comes to Jesus and indicates to Jesus that, that his servant is sick. And, and you know as well as I do that um, a Gentile in ancient Israel was, was hated by Jews. They were unclean. They were also, I mean, this man had another strike against him because he was a part of the, the Roman military. And this man showed such faith that Jesus said in all of Israel, he had not found anyone with a faith that compared to this man's faith. And so this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week, and we will look at another healing this morning, and then we will also look at um, a couple of Jesus' sp- smaller parables. I came across this illustration this week. It says, The man was putting a tin roof on his barn. When all of a sudden, he slipped and he began to fall off his roof. And needing a miracle, this man called out to God and said, God, if you're there, will you please rescue me? And so about that time, this man's clothes gets caught on a nail. And and that nail certainly saved him from certain death. And this man, he turns to God and he says, Never mind, God, I took care of it on my own. Isn't that how we are? We ask God to do the unexplainable in our lives. And as soon as he does, what do we do? We explain it away, don't we? Several years ago, there was a movie that came out called Miracle. And many of you probably watched that movie. And if you didn't watch that movie, you remember living the experience of the miracle. And if you recall back in 1980, there was um, the U.S. hockey team was not very good. At first. And so you see this movie where it documents this US hockey team's rise from obscurity to become gold medal champions. And they defeated the powerhouse. The Soviet Union at the time. Al Michaels was calling that gold medal game. And with about a minute left in the game, the crowd is going wild. They are screaming and they are yelling and they are chatting. And Al Michaels said that the arena was deafening. He said he had a hard time focusing on calling the game because it was so loud. And then with about 10 seconds left to go, the crowd begins counting down. 10. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, and with three seconds left in the game, Al Michaels screams out, "'Do you believe in miracles?' And at that time, the buzzer goes off and the, the U.S. defeats the Soviet Union 4-3 to three in that game. And the crowd is going wild. They're jumping up and down. And to this day, that is one of the greatest games that has ever been witnessed in the Olympics. And it certainly was the greatest call that has ever happened. I mean, everybody remembers, do you believe in miracles? You know, when we know a miracle to be... God doing something supernatural to receive glory. It's great to say that the U.S. defeating the Soviet Union is a miracle or the Chicago Cubs finally winning a World Series is a miracle or the Texas Rangers putting more than one win in a row together a miracle. Or the Dallas Cowboys winning a playoff game, a miracle. We like to say those are miracles. Those, my friends, are not miracles. If anything, those are accomplished and achieved because of hard work, because of discipline, because of teamwork, and you've got to sprinkle in a little bit of luck when it comes to the, to sports in general. If you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to begin looking at verse 14 together. So Matthew chapter eight, beginning in verse 14, and we're going to read verses 14 through 22 together this morning. But it says this, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Notice our message point this morning is this. Even after witnessing Jesus perform many miracles, some still chose not to follow him, there is still a crowd that is following Jesus. If you recall um, our last sermon series, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount, and there was not only Jesus's disciples there, but there was also a great crowd. And this crowd that was with Jesus up on the mountain has also come down from the mountain, and they are with him. They've witnessed him heal the leper. They've witnessed him heal the centurion's servant. And now, notice the next person that Jesus will heal. And the point is this, faith of a godly woman. Verses 14 and 15 again, we read, And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. Within the pages of the Jewish prayer book, these are the words that men have prayed for generations. Blessed are you, O God. King of the universe, who has not made me a Gentile, a slave, and a woman. As we looked at last week, Jesus did not classify people based on their race, or based on their gender, or based on their social status, or even their health. Jesus came to provide salvation to every man, woman, student, and child That walks the face of this earth. He came to provide salvation to the diseased, the slave, the woman, and the Gentiles. Romans 10.13 we read, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. This next miracle, as we've already read, is a healing of Peter's mother-in-law. Jesus comes into Peter's home. And he witnesses peter 's mother in law lying sick on the bed, and Jesus does what he reached out and he touched her in the book of mark we have, we have a little bit more detail. Um, centered around this story. In Mark chapter one, verses 29 through 31, we read, and immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. For this woman to have been sick, in bed, before it was time to go to bed, revealed just how sick she was. Women have a high pain tolerance, don't they? Women, you have a high pain tolerance. There is no doubt about that. When a woman stays in bed because of a sickness, it means that she really is sick. I know that when my wife tells me that she is sick and she remains in bed, it is bad. I mean, it's probably time for me to go ahead and call 911 because she is that sick. Men, on the other hand, when we stay in bed and claim that we're sick we're probably not quite as sick as we really think we are. Even though um, we like to turn to our spouses and go ahead and tell them to go ahead and plan our funeral service, right? When we're sick, we're not quite as sick as we actually are. But when a woman is sick, man, it is bad. I love in this story the tender approach that Jesus takes with Peter's mother-in-law. Notice what happens. There is an instant healing. He touched her hand and the fever left her. Just like last week when Jesus touched the man with leprosy, he was healed in an instant. That is what Jesus does. He heals us in an instant. He takes our sin-ridden bodies and redeems them for his great purpose. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 verses 8 through 9, Paul wrote these words to young Timothy. He said, "'Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, "'nor of me his prisoner, "'but share in suffering for the gospel "'by the power of God, "'who saved us and called us to a holy calling.'" Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, when He gave, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You and I were saved for a great purpose. Every single one of us in this room were set apart at the moment of our salvation for a great purpose. And that purpose is to serve Christ our King. This woman... When she was healed, notice what she did she sprung into action. There is immediate service that happens once she is healed. In verse 15, he touched her hand. Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. Immediately after this woman was healed, she began to serve Jesus. Let me add to this story. In Luke, Luke was a physician. So the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us in Luke. 438 that this woman didn't just have a fever, but she had a high fever. You know as well as I do that when a fever breaks, you're not ready to just jump out of bed and begin to serve, are you? I know that a few months ago I had the flu and I had a high fever for a series of days. And at the conclusion of that that fever breaking, Man, I still felt like I was on my deathbed. Fever was gone, but I wasn't ready to jump up and serve my family or get up to the church and serve you because I was too weak to do that. But notice what happens with this woman. Immediately when Jesus touches her, the fever is gone and she immediately gets up and begins to serve Jesus. Jesus not only healed this woman, but he returned her strength to her. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He heals our sin-ridden bodies and restores them for his great purpose. He restores them so that we can serve him and advance his gospel across these streets and around this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, For we are his workmanship meaning we are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were created for service, service to our King. We have looked at so far three miracles over the past two weeks. Here is the reality. If these three people had not been sick, there is a very, very good chance that they would have never, ever come to Jesus. They would have never entered into a relationship with Jesus. In Matthew chapter five, verse three, we read, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Their sickness revealed a great need for Jesus. That is what sickness often does. It draws us closer to Jesus, doesn't it? You know, sometimes our ailments are not healed, are they? Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray for God to heal our bodies. But sometimes God chooses not to do that in the way that we want him to do that. Sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray for God to heal our loved ones. But sometimes God chooses not to heal them the way we think that God should heal them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about an ailment that he had. He says this to the church at Corinth, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations of a thorn was given me in the flesh. We don't know what that thorn is. I mean, preachers have been speculating for years what that thorn is. We have no clue what that is. Paul never tells us. But we see here that he was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But what he said to me, is this my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ then I am content with weakness insults hardship persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong because of Paul's weakness. What was he led to do? Turn to Jesus. That's what our weaknesses do. They cause us to depend greater on Jesus than we would depend upon ourselves. Notice our second point this morning. It is this. Jesus, healer and sufferer, Jesus, healer and sufferer. In verses 16 and 17, we read this. That evening, they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Jesus' fame was spreading quickly throughout Galilee and throughout Israel. Word that Jesus was healing people, caused people to come to him to be healed of their sicknesses, to be healed of their disease. If if there was a demon that was possessed within a loved one, they brought them to Jesus so that Jesus could cast out that demon. I read somewhere this week that it is very, very, possible that in all of Galilee especially, but even possibly around Israel, that there was not a single person left with a sickness or a disease or a demon because everyone brought the sick to Jesus to be healed and to be exercised. I mean, that's amazing to think about. Can you imagine a world where there is no more sickness? Can you imagine a world where there is no more death? Can you imagine a world where there is no more cancer or disease? Or where there is no more paralysis or broken bodies? Can you imagine such a world? I can. And God's word promises me that one day this broken, sin filled body that stands up here before you will be restored. And there will come a day when there will be no more broken body. There will be no um, SID-ridden body. There will be no more disease or cancer or broken bodies. We read in Revelations chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. John writes these words. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. body that I have and that you have will one day take its final breath on this side of eternity. But there is coming a day when our fleshly bodies that are broken today will be broken no more. This fleshly body will one day become brand new. And on that day, there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more tears, no more sorrow our bodies will be completely restored before Jesus Christ. As we continue to walk through our passage this morning, Matthew has done, as Matthew has done throughout his gospel, once again he connects Jesus' ministry to Old Testament prophecy. In Matthew chapter 17, um, we read this, "'This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. "'He took our illness and bore our diseases.'" So notice first, he bore our illness. David Dykes writes this. Don't forget, Matthew was a tax collector before he became a disciple. As a CPA, his job was to reconcile columns and figures. As he wrote his account of Jesus' life, he was comparing two columns. On one side was the Old Testament predictions about the Messiah, and and on the other side was the New Testament fulfillment by the Messiah. As an accounting type, he couldn't miss the fact that the two columns often agree. Over and over throughout Matthew's gospel, Matthew connects Old Testament prophecy to New Testament fulfillment through Jesus' ministry and his life. And so in this case, he points back to a a, a a couple of verses in Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through 5, we read this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him Stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Jesus bore our illness. But notice also he bore our diseases. Jesus not only bore our sickness and our diseases, but he also bore upon himself our sins. He took upon himself our sins and bore our transgressions so that each and every one of us that call out to Jesus to forgive us of our sins and save us and give us the gift of eternal life. He saved us. Died for us. So that we can experience eternity. Some of your translations say, by his wounds we are healed. And that is good news this morning, my friends. Each of us in this place this morning can be healed of the greatest plague that infects our bodies today. And that is the plague of sin. Cancer is terrible. Disease is Is terrible. But there is no greater plague that plagues our body than sin. But the good news is this Jesus died on the cross for our sin, so that each and every one of us that cry out to Him and ask Him to forgive us of those sins and acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and Savior of our lives can. Be assured at that moment that we are forgiven, that we are cleansed, and that we are healed, and that we will spend eternity with him in a place called heaven. Those that choose, though, not to seek forgiveness for their sins will spend eternity separated from God in a real, literal place called hell. So if you don't know Jesus this morning... I want to encourage you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make, and that is to cry out to Jesus to forgive you of your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. Notice our third and final point this morning. It's this, the demands of discipleship. The demands of discipleship. In verses 18 through 22, we read, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the Son of man has nowhere to lay his head another of the disciples said to him Lord let me first go and bury my father and Jesus said to him follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead notice the crowd is still with Jesus People have been with him, as I indicated earlier, since he preached this message on the Sermon Mount. Word has spread of his healing and that he taught with such authority. But at this time, what Jesus tells his disciples basically is get the boat ready because we're gonna go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is tired. You know, this tells us right here that Jesus is, is both 100% God and 100% man. He's tired. He needs a break. And so he, he orders his disciples to get the boat ready because they're going to go to the other side of the lake. We know that he was tired because next week we're going to look at this. When Jesus gets into the boat, the boat sets sail. And, and what happens? There's a giant storm that brews. But what's Jesus doing in the midst of that storm? He's sleeping because he's tired. He's been working hard, he's been preaching, he's been healing, and he needs a rest. But before they set sail, there are two minor parables, or two um, small parables that he is going to um, share with us in, in this passage of Scripture. So notice the first conversation he has is with the scribe. Let me ask you this, are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to count the cost? In verses 19 and 20. We read this. And a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Here we encounter one of Jesus's miracles, our parables, I'm sorry. A parable is an illustration used by Jesus to communicate a truth in this parable, Jesus tells this scribe that foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, the Son of God, has nowhere to lay his head. A scribe was an authority figure during jesus They were authority in Jesus' law, or in Jewish law. They were educated and part of a scholarly class that would be similar to that of the Pharisees. They were teachers of the law. They were teachers themselves, and they would have had a following of people. The one thing they would not have is they would not have someone that they were following. So for this scribe to have gone up to Jesus and recognized that he was a teacher and say, hey, I want to be your disciple. This was a big, big thing because scribes just did not do that. It was unheard of. This man recognized in Jesus that he was the greatest teacher that he had ever heard. Also recognized that he was the greatest miracle worker this world had ever seen. He wanted more of Jesus. He wanted to be in proximity of him and to learn from him. However, he did not want to pay the price. He did not want to count the cost. This man, what he did is what often many of us, especially men in this room do. We speak before we think. And that's what this man did. He spoke out and said, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you lead me to go. I will follow you. I will be your disciple. But what Jesus tells him is, once again, that foxes have places to lay their head at night. They have a home. Birds have a home that they go to every night. But me being the son of man, the son of God, has nowhere to go to lay my head. I have nowhere to lay my head. And so what this is telling us is that there is a great cost when it comes to following after Jesus Christ. Every one of us in this room has a home that we call our own. We may own it. We may rent it. We may, especially all of us have a bed that we call our own. But what Jesus is telling this man is this, if you're going to follow after me, then you're not going to have a place that you're going to call home anymore because your home is going to be with me. And what does this man do? We're not told exactly what he does, but most likely what this scribe does is he recognizes that the cost is too great. And so he turns around, goes back home, sleeps in his comfortable bed and continues to live life as he's always lived it. Folks, there is a high cost of following Jesus Christ. This is not an easy life. This life of following Jesus may cost us our friends, may cost us our families, may cost us our jobs. It may even cost us our savings account. It may cost you your home And Jesus even says that it may cost you your life. In certain parts of this world, it costs people all of these things. For a person to become a follower of Jesus, what that means is that they have pretty much um, made it clear that I am a dead man walking on my way to my grave because following Jesus means that I will be put to death. That's what... It was like during Jesus' time, that's what Jesus was calling these men to, and that is still what Jesus calls us to today. Notice the second parable that Jesus shares. And here's the question. um, Are you willing to pay the price? In verses 21 through 22 we read, And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Most of us, when we read that passage of Scripture, we think that Jesus was a bit cold here, don't we? I mean, why would Jesus not let this man go and bury his father? I mean, I, that does, to me, seem a little bit cold. I mean, did Jesus not tell us, God the Father, not say that one of the commands is that we are to honor our father and mother? Is part of, not, part of honoring our father and mother not Making sure that they have a proper burial and a proper memorial service? Is that not part of it? Of course it's part of it. How long would it have taken this man to go and bury his father? A few days maybe? I mean, this man could have certainly caught up with Jesus on his return trip from the other side of the Sea of Galilee. But here's the reality when it comes to this passage of Scripture. Many people have taken this passage of Scripture out of context. The reality is this. That man's father was not dead. He wasn't dead. In, in ancient times... When a person died, and it's still the case in many parts of the world today, they're buried within hours. They're not buried within days. And I came across this illustration from one commentator, and it says this. It'll help us better understand what this man's um, statement to Jesus really meant and Jesus's statement back to him. Um, The expression is still used in many parts of the Middle East today. Let me go and bury my father. A few years ago, a missionary asked a rich young Turkish man to go with him on a trip to Europe, during which time the missionary hoped to disciple the man. When the young man replied that he must bury his father, the missionary offered his sympathy and expressed surprise that his father had actually died. The man explained, however, that his father was alive and healthy and that the expression "bury my father simply meant staying at home and fulfilling his family responsibility until his father died and he received his share of the inheritance. That's where the, the key is with this story. This man wanted to make sure that he stuck around his father long enough to receive what he thought was due him, his family's inheritance. How many times has our pursuit of earthly things kept us from pursuing Jesus? Folks, you and I do not come to Jesus on our terms. We come to Jesus on his terms. Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone would come after me, He must first deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow. We are commanded by Jesus that if we are going to be his disciples, then we need to be prepared by taking up our form of execution and strapping it to our backs and following after Jesus. There is a great cost to following Jesus. And there is a great price that must be paid as well. As indicated earlier, it may very well cost us our friendships. It may cost us our family relationships. It may cost us our jobs, our savings accounts, our homes, and certainly it may even cost us our lives. Everyone is called to follow Jesus, but not everyone is willing to pay the high price. There is a cost and there is a price when it comes to following after Jesus. Jesus makes that abundantly clear in this passage of Scripture this morning. Are you a follower of Jesus? Or are you more like these two men that we just read about? More of an admirer of Jesus. You like the Bible. You like the teachings that come from the Bible, but you're not willing to do what God's Word tells us to do. If we're going to follow after Jesus, it means that we're going to be all in. We're not going to be 50% in or 88% in or 99% in. Jesus calls us to be 100% in. And so this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, if there is a decision that you need to make, I invite you to come. You may be here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you were to die today, you do not know where you would spend eternity. You have no clue. If you want to know for certain where you would spend eternity, I'm going to be standing here at the front and I would love to share with you how you can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you've been visiting this church for a while and the Lord is leading you to become a member of this church, we invite you to make this your church home. You may need to, at the, wherever you're at this morning, you may need to just remain seated and pray. You may need to come to this altar and pray. And just ask God to just search your heart and reveal to you what you need to do after a message like this. The good news is this. Every single one of us in this room have been given the opportunity to follow after Jesus Christ. The question is, are you going to accept his invitation and repent of your sins and cry out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior or not? If you're willing to follow Jesus this morning, I'm going to be here at the front, and I would love to share with you how you can do that. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer. Our praise team is going to sing. And if there's a decision you need to make, you come. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning just thanking you for the opportunity just to be in your house. Thanking you for the opportunity, Lord Jesus, just to open up your word. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the great physician. Father, you are healer and savior. You are Lord. And Father, anyone who cries out to you, and repents of their sins, and and makes an about face, and turns away from this world, and begins to follow after you, then they have the promise in scripture that they will be saved. If there's someone here this morning that does not have a relationship with you, Lord Jesus, Father, I just pray right now that you will draw them unto salvation. Father, if there's someone here this morning or a family here this morning that's been visiting this church for a while, Lord, and you're leading them to become members of this church, Father, we invite them to come to be a part of this great church family. Father, whatever decision needs to be made to this morning, Father, we pray, Lord Jesus, that it will be made. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you don't know Jesus this morning, then I invite you to come. If if the Lord's leading you to become a member of this church, you come as well. You come as we sing.